And I'm excited to continue with you this morning. Well, the last three sermons that we've been in in the book of 1 Peter, I think if we are all, to be honest, have been full of joy and gladness. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, so my wife is laughing, so she knows that's a joke. We've been talking about submission and biblical views of submission and what that looks like in our approach to government, in our approach to those that are in authority over us, people that we work for. And then, of course, last time together was the difficult message of what submission, biblical submission, looks like in the home, within the marriage relationship. And so Peter has really been, I mean, he's been getting after it, and I hope that you've been growing. I know I have been. I've been challenged, certainly, personally, with those matters, because so much of our life is, is, uh, is around and influenced by people that are constantly resisting and pushing against things, isn't it? I mean, our world today says, you know, you need to stand up, you need to fight back, you need to resist, 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 but yet God says there's areas of our life where we as believers are to take a unique position of submission in order to glorify Jesus Christ and to also point other people to him. Now, submission we know is not popular. It's not a promoted subject. Even in modern evangelicalism, if you want to broaden the scope within Christians, but it is a biblical principle that is rooted in the word of God. And of course, we know that it is rooted in the the full uh, picture that is given to us in 1 Peter chapter 2 of Jesus and his full submission to the cross. Remember, the ultimate picture, obviously the ultimate example in all things of Christianity are found in Jesus, and Jesus most certainly is the example of the one who submitted himself, he humbled himself, he left heaven, he came to this earth, and he submitted himself to death at the hands of mankind in order to give us eternal life. And so that's the perfect picture, and Peter sort of set the tone by saying Jesus is the ultimate example of submission, and so if Jesus is the one who can submit himself to uh, this earth for our sins, then most certainly we can submit ourselves to these uh, governments and authorities and within our marriages that God has laid out for us. Certainly we can obey God in that way. And so that's really what the whole subject has been about. And Peter has put this uh, principle to the test by challenging us to grow in the area of submission. Not that we would walk around saying, poor me, I'm just a submissive Christian, you know, and using it as some sort of passive-aggressive way to control other people through our submission. But no, he's giving this to us and challenging us with it so that we would live in the proper attitude that God desires for us. I think so much we try to live and reflect the attitude of the world rather than the attitude of Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's really getting at those in these three different areas. But now what's going to happen is he is going to transition a little bit. He's going to move on from uh, the fact that our attitudes and our actions can be used by God to bring him glory and to reach other people with the gospel. But now he challenges us like a good spiritual leader to now take it to new heights. Now that we have this foundation of submission, we're now going to move forward into a higher level of spiritual living. And Peter really is a great example of a good leader. Now, I've been blessed over the years to be on a lot of different sports teams. And in all of those teams, guess what I had? I had a coach. Anybody else ever play in a team that you had a coach? Okay, a few of you. All right, okay, a few of you did. Good, good. I I had a lot of different coaches, and I'll tell you what, I had some bad coaches. I'll just be honest. And, uh, And they were just not great coaches. I've also had some really good coaches. And in all of my different good coaches, let's just use them as an example today, coaches, uh, whether it was baseball or basketball, uh, my good coaches, they always had one thing in common. At the very beginning of the season, when we would get together, they would push us so hard. I don't know how else to put it. They would make us run up and down mountains, which is the worst, by the way. Uh, they, would, they would make us run. You know, we do 10-mile runs through the desert of California. 
And, uh, and, and I hated every minute of it, you know? And then we'd have practices. Sometimes we have two-a-day practices. And we're there in the morning, and then we go back at night. Uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid on an all-star baseball team, we had an entire week where we would literally practice every day from 8 a.m. till 4 p.m. I'm talking as a, like an 11-year-old kid. <laughs> we'd start out the day with taking 100 ground balls and 100 fly balls, every single kid on the team. And uh, they, they called it a, a bad word uh, for the week. I wasn't allowed to say it as a kid. It was a they called anyway, you can figure it out. It was a week, you know, and I wasn't allowed to call it that because it was a bad word. But um, please don't think of all the bad words that you know right now. You're like, okay, wait, is it? No, no. They, we were kids, but it was, you know, as a pastor's kid, it was a very bad word. So I didn't say it, and I wasn't allowed to say it. We just called it intense week. <laughs> it was an intense week of practice. And we would, we would do all this, but here's the point I'm trying to get across. In all of these situations, or l- later on when I played in university basketball, we would work so hard at the beginning of the year But then when the season came around, there was a change that would happen within our coaches. They would be, I mean, they'd be screaming at us. They'd be in our faces. They'd be be working us so hard. But as soon as we would start the season and we would start to play, a tone would change. And the change would be a tone, rather than them being angry all the time, which I thought they were angry all the time, they would move to more of an encouraging attitude and an encouraging position. So what they would do now is when we're in the huddle or it's before a game and, or even at practices, once the season has started, the coach would say, listen, we've done the work already, guys. You know what to do. You've memorized the playbook. You know what we have to do. You know how hard you've had to work to get here. And so he would, he would change from just like pushing us, pushing us hard to now, all right, you know what to do. Now let's go on together and let's do it. Now sure, we'd make adjustments and changes would be made, but for the most part, he would encourage us to execute what we already know to do. He would say, we've practiced this. You understand this. You're in shape. You're ready to go. And so he would push us in that way. And guess what? I love playing for coaches like that. I love playing for coaches that encourage me when we finally got into the season. And this is sort of what we're seeing. I'm trying to, and if you've never played sports in your life and never had a coach, I'm sorry. I'm trying to illustrate it here uh, to help us understand that this is kind of what Peter's been doing. He's been pushing and he's been going after this uh, this area of of submission. And it's been hard to listen to. It's not a lovely thing to have somebody say, you need to submit yourself to the government that you're underneath. That wasn't an easy message, was it? What, three, three or four weeks ago? That wasn't easy for me to, to, to prepare for, and it wasn't easy for me to preach. But yet there are aspects of that that God really desires for his people. And so we've had this hard, these hard lessons of submission, but now what he's doing is he's moving us now from this posture to an expression of that submission And the way that it's expressed in the way that we relate now to other people. So now we're talking about actual living. We're not talking about uh, the heart aspect anymore of 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 a tone of submission. We're now looking at how we respond to other people and as we as we try to develop as, as believers. And so he knows that we discourage easily. And so I think he's just sort of encouraging us here at this moment. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us some checkpoints for spiritual maturity. Now, that's a really long way to get into the message today. So let's get into the passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's read verse number 8 together. And he says this. He says, finally. No, he didn't say it like that. <laughs> he said, finally. <laughs> Maybe some of you are saying finally. We've talked about all this submission stuff. Finally, that means all together now, he says, be ye all of one, say that word with me, mind. Be of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. The first thing that I want us to notice in this passage is how to treat believers. My first thought this morning, Peter is saying, now I want to show you how you are to treat 
believers. Look back then at the verse as he gives us several different ways that we're to treat one another. He is now summarizing this whole subject and encouraging us towards these building blocks, is what I'm calling them, of interpersonal relationships within the local church. So let's just walk through them. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each because some of them are already being repeated from what we've seen already in the verse, but or, or, or earlier on in the book. But I want to just cover them really quickly because I think these are really important as we desire to live for the Lord and also encourage one another along the way. Did you know that our relationship as Christians, one to another within the local church, is one of the most precious relationships that you could ever have? I hope you understand that. Now, I recognize that there are many people today that have had bad church experiences. We won't do by a show of hands. Especially if you've only gone to this church. <laughs> but you know what I mean. There's, I mean, there's, there's bad church experiences that people have. I understand that. That may be some of you today. Some of you might be here and you're just like still trying to get used to going to church or being around other people. Some of you I know are sitting here and you're suspicious of me. And you don't even know me. You're suspicious of other people. Not, not because of, of, of who I am or what I've done, but just because you've gone through some difficulty. But what I want to illustrate to us, church families, is that there is actually a biblical way of how churches should relate. There's a biblical way of how Christians should connect with one another. And that's what we see here in this very first section where he says to us that we need to be of one mind. What is he talking about here? He's beginning with the all-important point that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are people who should be of one mind, which means we are people of unity. People of unity. Now, whenever you start talking about unity within the church, there's this confusion that sort of comes, and we confuse the idea of unity and uniformity. And I want to make this very clear this morning that unity does not mean uniformity. Here's what true unity is. It is cooperation in the midst of diversity. Now think about that for a minute. That's awesome, isn't it? That's awesome that as Christians, God desires for us to work together to cooperate even though we are so very, very diverse. See, some people have this idea that, well, if I go to church or, or if I go to this kind of church or this whatever, that I have to sort of fit into this sort of uniform way and, you know, everybody looks the same, acts the same, talks the same, you know, whatever it may be, and I have to be uniform in this. No, no, no. Unity, true unity is cooperation amongst diversity. Remember, we are members of one body. Yes, as Corinthians teaches us, however, we work harmoniously in unity even though we are different. That's why the scripture says, you know, the nose should not, you know, look to the hand and say, I wish I was the hand, and the hand say, I wish I was the nose. But that funny, uh, you know, that funny little illustration, I always imagine them sitting around a table wearing hats, you know, talking to each other. And uh, I know it's weird, but uh, the, the, the idea that we're all different and we want to be like others. No, we are unique. God has created you who he created you to be. And you serve a purpose and you serve an important role. Just like, you know, in music here, Andy is so, so amazing on the piano and Christian and others who play the piano. There's different notes that make up chords. And just on their own, they're all very unique and very different. But when you play them together, they create something pretty incredible. Something that four years of piano lessons did not teach me. But I know that it, it, some other people can do it pretty well. I still have trouble with that. But you understand what I'm saying. Just like all of those come together, we make a beautiful... A cohesive group together. And this is how we live and work as Christians in the local church. And so don't fall into the trap of uniformity. 
Some of you who might be new to City Baptist, you kind of, maybe you're just observing and you're like, okay, I feel like I got to be a certain way. No, no, not at all. I want you to know that we are a diverse group of people who cooperate together around a central theme. And what that central theme is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming him to our community, to our neighborhood, sharing the gospel. I'm so excited about the spring and summer. Now that we've made the move, we've transitioned, we're here to start outreach in the neighborhood and getting involved. I'm just really excited about that because that's the common thing that binds us together. It's not, it's not not me, it's not Christian, it's not any individual, it's not anything that we do. We are unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter here is saying, listen, from the very beginning, you got to remember that you are to be in unity. So be of one mind, church family. Recognize that. But then he also says that we need to have compassion then. Now these two, I, I believe, are really interconnected here because he's saying that believers must be compassionate to one another. That word compassion comes from the Greek word that we get sympathy from. So what he's saying to us here is that we are to be people who actually sympathize and we feel what other people feel. That means that when someone in our group is suffering, we sense the suffering with them. When somebody is weeping, as scripture teaches us, we weep with those who weep. When somebody is rejoicing, we are excited for them over someone receiving an honor. We're not just like, yeah, they don't deserve that. We, we, we have these uniqueness of, of, of uh, feelings together. We grieve with those that are sorrowing. We understand that when someone's in position of leadership within the church, we recognize that they have struggles and difficulties like everybody else, and they have pressure that maybe you don't understand as well. And so we have this sort of cohesive understanding of one another. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 tells us to bear one another's burdens so that we fulfill the law of Christ. There's a fulfillment in this bearing of one another's burdens, this compassion. And see, unity cannot exist unless we have genuine compassion and sympathy towards one another. See, the body of believers is not a place to be detached and to be selfish. It isn't. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture where it's a bunch of individuals who are out to get their own way trying to work together. That's a disaster. That's probably your workplace, right? (laughs) Everybody just crawling over each other. No, there's a unity, a, a, a compassion for one another that develops this deep, deep unity. We cannot be seeking attention and always trying to get our own way if we are going to be unified. And unity demands sympathy. It demands that we feel for one another. And so deeply that we actually are able to, now this is on a spiritual note, which is so unique, that it is possible to feel and to grieve and to suffer and to sorrow with other believers. It's really interesting. It's a unique connection that we have that is not found anywhere else. And so he says, I want you to have compassion. He also says, I want you to love as family. I want you to love as family. The word there is brotherly love, and it's used often in Scripture to describe the love that Christians have for one another. And it's not only described as a love that a family has toward each other, which you think about your family. uh, I don't know why I'm laughing, but, uh, you know, you think about your family. I love my family. My family's great, but you don't always agree with your family, do you? Your family doesn't always get along, do they? But guess what? You love them because they're your family. And that's what he's talking about here is that, listen, we're not, again, that comes back to the idea of uniformity. We're not all just, you know, exactly the same. We're unique. We're different. We have different personalities. We click with one another in different ways, but yet we have this rooted love for one another. Reminds me back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he talked about this kind of love when he says, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto the unfeigned love of the brethren. Do you remember that? That's the idea of genuine love. It's not fake. 
You know, we're not in here like, hey, love you, bro. That guy's the worst. You know, we're not like that at all. We, we are genuine in our love for each other. It's, 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 it's for real. It's a real love. Despite our differences, and this is the cool thing, despite our differences and despite even disagreements, we have a sincere love for one another. And the great thing is, is as we grow in holiness, we learn to love each other more intensely because of that Holy Spirit that's within us. And this kind of love is not possible in the world at large. I want you to understand that. You know, our world out there, and of course, I mean those that are without Christ, they try to manufacture this love. They try to do everything they can to try to recreate this genuine love that is out there, but it truly is only possible with the love of Christ behind it. It is something that is unique to those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, that have a security of heaven. We have that common forgiveness for one another, that common love that is just so special. And we see it here as family love. The other building block that he's trying to encourage us with is he says, I want you to be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. The word that's translated pitiful here, it means to be tender-hearted. It means to be conscious of one another's needs, but also have a desire to alleviate that need that you see. You know, it's, it's a big difference between recognizing a need and then actually doing something to help that need. You know, when I was in, in, uh, in Christian college, they would always say, see the need, Take the lead, right? Hey, that's a good one, Christian. That's a good one. He's laughing over there. That's a good one. (laughs) But it's good, isn't it? And that's always stuck with me. You know, if you see a need, take the lead and step in onto it. You know, get involved with it. And, uh, And he's not the only one who laughed. Everybody laughed too. But that's a good thing. It's a good thing, isn't it? And as Christians, that's what it means. It means that we look at one another. We recognize needs. We sense needs. We see where there's things that can be helped. And we ourselves step in and get involved in that way. It means that as we are compassionate and touched and moved by the hurts and the pains and the needs and the joys of fellow believers, we actually act in stepping in to help them out. We are affectionate. We are sensitive. We're quick to give emotional support. We're quick to give spiritual support. We're quick to give even financial support. To help one another. I'm always so amazed, you know, in the early church in the book of Acts, you know, it says they sold everything that they had and they gave it all to the church to help the needs. I mean, that's a huge expression of what we're seeing right here. Somebody who is tenderhearted, they see a need and they say, you know what, I, I have the ability, God has blessed me with the ability to meet that need. Now, too often we get locked in the idea that it's only a financial thing. I want you to think about this. Listen, God may have gifted you emotionally and spiritually, God may have gifted you with the ability just to have time to talk to people and connect with people. You may be gifted with a, a personality that is easy to talk to. You know, we're not all that, we don't all have that same personality, do we? But you might have that. And so using that to minister and to connect to other people is seeing needs and being able to reach out and get connected in that way. Look at the verse again here. He says, having compassion one of another, love his brethren, be pitiful. And then lastly, he says here, be courteous. Now, what does this mean? This is more than just saying good morning. Good morning. Can I hold the door for you? What a courteous young man, you know? Right? That's not what we're talking about here. This isn't just like tipping your cap and saying hello. It means to be humble-minded is what it means. It means to be lowly in mind. It means you present yourself as a humble and a submissive person. You're not proud. You're not arrogant. You're not assertive. And the thing that we need to remember, because whenever we talk about humility and submission, we always think, well, this is just going to crush who I truly am. Humility does not invalidate your worth or your abilities, okay? You can be, I mean, Jesus was called humble and meek, right? Moses was known as a meek man. That's, that's not weak. Meekness and humility, these things really connect. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength that is under control. 
And as Christians, that should define us as a, as a very clear characteristic that we are strong in the Lord. We're strong in our confidence. We are strong in what we believe. We are strong in our identity in Jesus Christ that we know who we are and nobody else has to define who we are. But we're strong, but we are under control as well. So much of our world is out of control. Christians are strong and in control. And this is what it means here. He says to be humble means to be that you're a person that knows your value and knows your worth, but you don't inflate them to intimidate other people or to dominate other people. The humble Christian can view our characteristics and our abilities with thankfulness to God, and we reflect it in that way. So I want you to see the picture that Peter is building for us. He's building a picture of a church family that has mutual love, mutual respect, Mutual compassion and unity because of Jesus Christ, our shared faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? I think it does. (laughs) It sounds pretty amazing. So why do so many churches struggle with this? If this is the ideal church family, this is how we relate to one another, why is it that so many churches feel cold? Why do they feel like they're without genuine love? The reason is seen here in that we have not built these characteristics into our lives. Let me illustrate it this this way. You know, uh, we have four boys, as you guys know, most of you, and they are busy. They're always doing something, you know, always doing something. And so a couple years ago when the pandemic started, we got a trampoline on Craigslist, and we put it in our backyard and they're working on destroying it, you know, <laughs> they're doing their best. And they jump on that thing all the time. But one of the things that happens is when my boys are outside, maybe I'll come home from work and I see them, I pull up and they all start screaming at me, yeah! you know, hey dad. And I get out and I go inside and they come running inside and they come up and they give me a hug. And I love that. I'm so thankful for that. But now that they're getting a little bit older, now they're getting a little bit taller. They're a little bit closer to the nasal cavity, you know, <laughs> when they come and give me a hug. They used to be down here, you know, now they're kind of up here in my grill a little bit. And so when they come running in off the trampoline and they're sweating and breathing hard and I give them a hug, it's like, oh man, you kind of get a little, a little whiff, right? When I was a kid, my mom used to say, I smelled earthy is what she would say, you know, <laughs> I smell earthy and I totally get it. I smell like I've been outside for a little bit, a little bit of that sweat and dirt and whatever mixed together, mold, whatever it is, you know. <laughs> All of these things. And so when that happens, they come running in, dad, and they hug me, and I'm just sort of like, whew, you are taking a shower tonight, right? That's what I say to them. You're taking a shower tonight. And I push them away. Not because I don't love them. I hug them first, but I kind of push them away, go back outside, (laughs) you know, or go downstairs and get in the shower, because they have a bit of an unpleasant stench about them. You know, I think sometimes when we come together as a gathering of believers, sometimes we carry a little bit of the stench of the world on us. Now, here's what I mean by that. Rather than the things that glorify God like unity and compassion and humility, too often we carry with us from the outside world into the church, we carry with us the world's arrogance and pride and rudeness and win-at-any-cost attitude. And we bring that kind of character into the church with us, and then we wonder why there's just a struggle going on. Does that make sense? And so he's giving to us here as believers that we are called to something greater than that. See, we're actually able to live for God outside of the world, 
are outside of the church, but we're also able to maintain that as we come into the church. And sometimes we get those things flipped around. And so we bring that in with us, and we wonder why there's struggles, why there's difficulties, why there's challenges. And I understand, listen, when you're in that environment, and you're in your work environment, and you're just, you know, trying to get ahead, and you're just trying to survive, man, it's tough, isn't it? And you, and you feel like, I got to do this to survive, and I got to act in this way, or be this certain way. You know, I've had friends of mine say, I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I'm going to fit in at work. You know what? You don't have to do that. Do you realize that? You don't have to. You can live for God. You can have a good testimony for him. And you can exemplify these characteristics even outside. But most of all, we should be able to exemplify it right in here in the church. And this is what brings us together. This is what is so just so powerful. See, the answer to the longevity of our church here at City Baptist, you know, this year in September is going to be eight years, if you can believe it. Snaps. Eight years. People don't say snaps anymore. Man, that was just, nobody says that. That was pretty cool. We should bring it back. Why not? All right, Chris, next Sunday, I want to hear a snaps. Let's sing. <laughs> oh, man, I am getting old. All right. What was I saying? I was saying something before I said snaps. Okay. The answer <laughs> to the longevity of our church family, the ability of ours to come together is not in this building. Okay? It is not in the programs that we put out. It's not in anything that we try to do. The thing that's going to keep us together, that's going to bring the church together, is when we are unified, we are compassionate, we are loving, and we are tenderhearted towards one another. That's what's going to make the difference. That's what's going to last the test of time. That's what's going to stand up against persecution. I'll tell you what, those believers that are in the Ukraine right now, they're not worried about where they're meeting. They're not worried about the programs that they have on anymore. No, they're worried about being together as believers. And there's been some powerful stories that have come out of that, of them worshiping together and connecting one with another. And you know what? Everything else is on the side now. It's all about unity, and it's all about their common faith in Jesus Christ and their support for one another during that difficult time. And for us, if we're going to withstand the persecution of the church that is coming here in Canada, we're going to have to exemplify these characteristics that Peter is giving to us here. We are called to something greater. And so he's telling us here, he's saying, this is how I want you to treat believers. This is how I want you to interact. But then he continues on, and he makes it a little bit more difficult. I'm just going to be honest with you here. Because now he talks about, as we continue, how to treat our enemies. How to treat our enemies. Now, we're in a bit of a transition here. Let's look at verse number 9. He says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise, that's on the contrary, Say that word with me, blessing. Oh, that was not very good. Say it again, blessing. Knowing that ye are therefore called, or thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So here's what we want to, I want us to see. He, he gives us the ideal attitude within the church with believers, but now he transitions to applying these same, they're similar principles, but applying them to relationships with, uh, outside of the church as well. Now, of course, he's been talking about the church and, and frankly, what he's talking about here could definitely apply to those within the church. But the fact alone that he's dealing with subjects like uh, evil, railing, that slander, it gives us the idea that he is talking about those that are outside of the church as well. So I want to just clarify that real quickly. It applies, yes, within the church, but ideally, if we're following verse 8, we're not going to be dealing with evil for evil and slander and slander, right? So this applies on the outside as well. Now, He's confronted with this temptation that we all face, which is to return evil for evil. 
that is probably the most natural reaction, I think, in all of us. If you're honest, I'm going to be honest with you, it's a natural reaction for me to repay people evil for evil, slander for slander. I mean, that's what social media is built off of, isn't it, right? Revenge and getting after people and having, you know, saying things that we would never say to somebody's face. And it is so natural for us, and it happens in us even as young as an infant. Now, I'm not going to say the Sousa boys are this way. I don't think they're quite there yet. But I've seen kids return evil for evil. I mean, if you want to see it, I think we're hiring, or not hiring, we're signing up new nursery worker volunteers. And if you want to see evil for evil, man, go to the nursery. You took my toy. I'm taking your toy. You took my toy. I'm going to take your toy. You hit me with a hammer. I'm going to hit you with a hammer, the, the toy hammer, you know. And it's just back and forth. It is innate within us. And yet Peter here says, when it comes to those that are doing evil towards you, when it comes to those that are slandering you, you do not respond in the same way. Rather, he says, you should respond with a blessing. You know, Jesus, our perfect example, did this, uh, talked about this in Matthew 5 when he says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate uh, you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So here's the idea. The way that we respond to evil attacks should always be characterized by blessings, not by cursing, not by equal evil, not by equal slander. And blessings here refers more than just words of kindness, okay? Not like, wow, you had really good form when you punched me. That was really great. Thank you. Man, you just made me feel this big when you slandered me online. And man, that was great. I want to encourage you in that, you know? That's not what he means. What he's talking about here is not only that can apply, certainly, being kind, but it's the idea of believers offering the gospel to those who persecute them. Now, then it takes on a much deeper meaning, doesn't it? When you think of it that way. Okay, I'm not just giving them a blessing like, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you. Thank you for ruining my life. You know, I'm leaving now. No, no, no. It actually means us stepping forward and sharing with them the goodness, the blessing that is found in Jesus Christ. He says, knowing that we are called to this, there at the, at the second part of the verse, that you should inherit a blessing. See, as believers, we are going to suffer wrong. That's just what it is. We might be persecuted for our faith. We might just go through rough times because people are bad. People are evil. People are depraved. But we can depend on God's blessing, whether it's a spiritual blessing or a physical blessing, when we respond in a God-honoring way. See, as Christians, and I want you to understand this, we can live at three different levels as Christians. Here's what I want, I want you to understand. We can be the kind of people that return evil for good. So somebody does good and we return evil upon them. That's a satanic level of living. It really is. We could return good for good and evil for evil. That is the human level. Or we can return good for evil. That is a divine level. That is a spiritual, that is a Christian way. And this is the standard that God has given to us. And he uses Jesus as the perfect example of the correct approach. See, we should not live our lives eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You do this to me, I'm gonna do this to you. Not at all. We need to operate on the basis of mercy and forgiveness because that is how God operates towards us, isn't it? Now, that's hard. That's hard. That is challenging. It's frustrating <laughs> because we want to get our own, right? We want to get our own revenge in. We want, to, we want to make them pay. We want to bring the same amount of suffering and even more upon those that have caused us to suffer but he says here very clearly, do not give back evil for evil, railing us slander for slander, not at all, but rather give a blessing. 
Now, put that into practice in your life. Think about the person right now that you want to get back at. Oh, there are, there's somebody? Okay. Everyone kind of looked down at their shoes all of a sudden. Think about the person that you want to get back at right now. And I want you to think about how you can be a blessing, give a blessing, speak a blessing, share the blessing of Jesus Christ. You say, I could never do that. God's not asking you to do that. He's saying, I want you to do it through my strength. Right? And that's hard. That's hard. It's hard, especially when you haven't forgiven them in the first place. And that's always the first step, isn't it? The first step I would encourage you with is forgiveness. Forgive. And then we can move into these harder steps of, of living in this way, of giving a blessing to those that have hurt you. And it's hard. It's so hard when you think about these things. But this is how God dealt with us. And as Christians, we are to reflect that to the world. Those are the kind of stories, those are the kind of situations that make a real difference, that make a real difference. And there's something so freeing about giving a blessing to somebody who's hurt you. There's something so freeing. And those of you that have ever experienced that, there is a spiritual just clarity and just, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to describe it, that God does in your heart and in your life that just, man, it it changes you. It changes you. This is how we are to treat our enemies. We know how we're to treat believers, but we're also to treat our enemies differently as well. All right, let's look at the last thought, and I promise you I'll be quick. He says at the end, he says, here, here's how you can just love life. I like this. How to love life. Maybe some of you in your house have live, laugh, love, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the most popular L words <laughs> in the last 15 years. And uh, love. Let's talk about how to love life, though. Look at verse 10 and 11. All of you that laughed, you probably have that in your house somewhere, right? Probably in the bathroom. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew. That's a really cool word. We'll talk about that here. And do good. Let him seek peace and sue it. That means pursue it. Now, verses uh, 10 through 12, we'll read 12 in just a minute, are a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 34. Peter also quoted Psalm 34 earlier on in 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't know if he had it open there beside him as he was writing this letter. You know, sometimes how that happens, the connections that are made here. But he quotes uh, uh, Psalm chapter 34. uh, Yeah, Psalm chapter 34. And it's a psalm that is given to those who are afflicted or in trouble. It's a perfect psalm considering the theme of the letter to the uh, afflicted, to those that are strangers and pilgrims. But the phrase here where he says, he that will love life and see good days is a really unique reference here because what he's talking about is he's talking about the person who can trust God no matter where they are and no matter what situation they're going through. And this is the encouragement that he's saying. If you want to really love life, here's what you do. You just have full, complete, and total trust that God's got everything worked out. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that, listen, you can live and have good days even in the middle of difficult situations. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Paul, that sounds pretty good. How's that even possible? Well, the answer is seen right there. It's found in living righteously. Notice here what he says. Watch what you say. Do you see that there? It will refrain your tongue from evil and your lips that they don't speak any guile. Here he says, you'll, you'll keep your tongue from speaking evil, your lips from telling lies. The word evil means any kind of speech that would be displeasing to God, uh, lies that are meant to deliberately trick or to mislead somebody. He says, if you want to really enjoy life, 
regardless of the circumstances, then you're going to turn away from, that's what a shoe means, you're going to run away from evil, and in fact, it's going to, you're going to hate evil so much that you're not even going to want to speak things that are considered evil. And so you're going to be in control. And then he also says that we're to live in peace, and that, of course, is the absence of, uh, not just the absence of conflict, but he says that you need to be a peacemaker, and that means that you're someone who works hard at peace. It means you're, a, you're going to be an individual that uh, does a good job and tries to build good relationships. You know that peace is a byproduct of commitment to that person. You recognize that, uh, that problems will come, and so as a peacemaker, you'll anticipate a problem, and you will work hard to make sure that things are dealt with and made right even before they occur. When a conflict arises, a peacemaker is somebody who brings the conflict into the open between them and that person and makes things right before they grow unmanageable. So he says you want to watch out for the things that you're saying. Don't, don't find yourself in evil. Be a peacemaker. He says, and you'll actually have good days. You'll live, and you'll be content, and you'll be happy even though you're in a difficult time. And then he lastly, he closes in verse 12. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. I love this. Here's, he's saying, why should you refrain from evil? Why should you pursue peace? For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. And his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God is watching over those who do right. I love that. God is watching over the righteous. Even when you think nobody noticed that you're living this way. And you may be like, I'm trying my best. I'm trying to serve God. Uh, even in my alone time, I'm making sure uh, that I'm walking with him and I'm pursuing good things. God does see that. He does notice it. And you don't need everybody else to affirm what you're doing for the Lord. But God says, I see the works. My eyes are over the righteous. My ears, notice he says as well, not only does he see it, but he hears our prayers. That means he knows our needs. He hears your prayers in suffering. He hears your unspoken cries for his love. He hears those things. And as a believer, we are seen, we are heard, we are protected by God, and we don't have to live our lives in judgment or in condemnation of others because God is the one who will avenge all of those wrongs. God is the one who will make all things right because he ultimately is holy and the righteous judge, and we can trust him. If you don't get anything else today, write that down somewhere. I can trust God. He is in control. He sees, he knows, and he has a better way for us. And so we must trust what he says to do, and I promise you, if we trust and we follow, it will lead to a good life, even on this broken fallen, war-torn, disease-ridden world that we live in. It won't be perfect. It's not going to be without trouble. But it will be good because you serve a good God. You serve a good God. Man, stop trying to serve yourself. Stop trying to serve somebody else. Serve God. He is good. He is good. And he can, through his spirit give you the strength that you need to live for him and to say there are good days even in difficulty, even in hard times because of his goodness. I love what we sang earlier, the names of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He came, he was with us. And when he left, he said, it's a good thing for me to go to heaven. Why? Because then the comforter's gonna come, the spirit's gonna come think about that. Jesus said it is better for you to have the Spirit of God than for you to have a physical representation of God himself on earth. 
That means that the spirit that is within you, Christian, if you're a believer today, the spirit that indwells you is God's greatest and perfect gift to you. And it's everything you need. Isn't that great? Every, it's the ultimate multivitamin. <laughs> vitamin. It's everything you need. It's got everything, and it's found in Christ. But we've got to surrender to him. We've got to submit ourselves to him. And then these are just practical points, right? I love scripture. It's just like, here, do this, do this, do this. All right, great. I got it. Do you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't got it. I have to work at it. And that's why we've got to be reminded that we should be people who are treating our brothers and sisters in Christ the way that we should. We should respond righteously in the face of mistreatment. We should turn from evil. We should be people who pursue good, pursue peace, all because of our good and merciful God.